by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. week we started a series I guess I don't know how these series things I call them series sometimes but our message last week was called shout for the victory and we did so we're going to turn it into a series today the second message is going to be called photobombing Christ <laughs> photobombing Christ if you don't know what that means that's when you jump in the picture when somebody's taking a picture of someone photobombing Second Chronicles 7.14 says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. And some people may be saying, like, yada, 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 yeah, yeah. I put that on my Facebook page. And most of us as Christians feel like we have to post that on the Facebook page. Very popular scripture these days. But the question is, is it more than just a platitude? Is it more than just a cliche? Is it just is more than just a chant? Are we really humbling ourselves? Are we really praying? Are we really seeking his face? Are we really turning from our wicked ways so that God can heal our land and forgive our sins? Are we really doing it? This brother over here says, I am. Amen. And I got good news for you guys. We're doing it. You may not even recognize we're doing it. You may not have been, been fully participating so far, but you are part of a church that is doing this. In January, what did we do? We talked about the difference in the flesh and the spirit. We started preparing our hearts to know what is right living, to know how to live right for God. We begin to humble ourselves. And then in January, we had 21 days of prayer and fasting. That is humbling yourself. And that prayer time, that is seeking God's face. And so we prayed and we sought his face and we humbled ourselves. And we're turning from our wicked ways. We are doers of the word. We're not just posters of the word. We don't just post the word. We do the word. There's a big difference. I guess y'all didn't hear anything I said. That's good news. That's good news. Can't you feel, don't you sense something going on? We are part of something bigger than we realize. Last week we shouted for the victory, and I felt something just break free in the spirit. We responded to God's voice, the trumpet call, and we shouted, and something in the spirit realm broke free. You see, God does things on the inside. God does things in the spirit before they manifest themselves in the natural world, in the natural realm in which we see things. And something has already happened. We shouted before the victory. The victory is already on the way. The victory is already here. But I want you to know 
how you handle success, the success that is about to come to us as a church, is just as important as how you handle failure. It's just as important as how you handle day-to-day, nothing seems to be changing. The same vigor that we shouted with, we have to, we have to keep in our hearts as we experience the success that God is about to bring to us. When I was praying about what to minister on today, where do we go from there? We had to shout last week, you know. And uh, where do we go from there? So I looked up the story of Gideon. You know, it was Gideon we talked about last week. He blew the ram's horn, they shouted, they broke the clay pots, and they let their light shine for Jesus, you know. And we shouted for the victory. And I said, well, where do we go next, God? So I, I looked at what happened next in the story of Gideon. And you're not going to believe it. Gideon was God's people. He, was, he, he saved Israel, the Jews. And the Jews are made up of 12 tribes. And one of the tribes is Ephraim. Now, Gideon didn't have time to call all 12 tribes together for this battle with the Midianites that we talked about. And God only used 300 anyway, only let him take 300 to battle against the probably 100,000 Midianites. And God gave Israel as a whole a great victory because the Midianites were, they were oppressing and trying to wipe out Israel. And you would think Israel would be shouting for joy. But the first thing I see after the victory is that this little tribe of Ephraim is all upset. And they want to... They want to go to war against Gideon because Gideon didn't call them to be part of the battle. <laughs> Isn't that like people? They probably wouldn't have came if he invited them. It's easy to look back and say, oh, I would have, I would have really been there. I would have been the one that won the battle. But anyway, he has to soothe their egos. He has to... Tell them, it's all right, you know, you guys did good when I called you and everything. It's going to be all right. Whew, Jesus experienced the same kind of things with his disciples. He's walking along, you know, and he hears some of the disciples talking. What y'all talking about? They didn't want to tell Jesus because they over there talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> They're saying, I'm going to get to sit by him. No, I am. I'm the most important one. Two of the disciples had their mama come talk to Jesus. Mama, will you go ask Jesus if I can sit with him in heaven? Human nature is funny, isn't it? Can you imagine the way God feels? It's like we, his children, even his children we got to be careful about how we handle the victory and not start trying to take credit for everything. We're like children in the back seat bickering, you know. He just wants <laughs> Can y'all shut up back there? Paul ran into the same kind of things in the churches. Now, this is in the churches, right? He's talking about other ministers who would come you know, into the certain temple and, and preach and talk about how great they were compared to some, I'm better than so-and-so. He said in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, oh, don't worry, we wouldn't dare say that we're as wonderful as these other men who teach you how important they are. 
But they're only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. How ignorant, Paul says. Comparing yourselves with one another. That's just a stupid measurement anyway. Why can't we just all be thankful to God and just give him all the credit? And why can't we be happy for one another? Life would be so much more simple if we didn't feel like we have to fight for credit. That's pride. That's pride. So I'm going to tell you a story about two men in the Bible. One of them's name was Mordecai, and one of them's name was Haman. And it's in the book of Esther. Esther's probably the star of the show if you read the book of Esther, but Mordecai and Haman are big players. And Mordecai, he's a Jewish man. He's a child of God, and he's humble. He's super humble. He like he he he, t- he took Esther. Esther was like a little girl. He was they were actually cousins, but she was much younger than him. And, and her parents had died, and he took her into his family. He raised her like his own daughter, and so he he was a cousin, but he was more like an uncle or slash father to her. And he raised her like a humble man would. Loving and caring. But this other guy, Haman, that I'm going to tell you about, he was self-seeking. He would, he would step on you in a moment to get to the next rung on the ladder of success. It was all about him. Well, the story goes that this is in uh, Persia. Uh, this is after the Babylonians had ruled the world and destroyed and, and taken into captivity to Jews, and still the Jews were dispersed, and many of them now are in the Persian Empire. And there's a Persian king named Xer- Xerxes, I guess is the way you pronounce it. I'm just going to call him Xerxes. You can call him what you want to. You can find it in the book of e- Esther. But Xerxes runs his first wife off, and now he's looking for a new queen. And so he searches the land, he has this contest, so to speak, to bring all the beautiful women in, and he chooses which one he wants. And Esther is the most beautiful, because she too is a Jew, and she is humble as well. And let me tell you, if you're in a contest of beauty, and you got inner beauty, you're going to win. You know, that's where the real beauty comes from. So the king falls in love with Esther and makes her his queen. And, but they have kept it quiet that they're Jews. Because they're in exile, you know, and they're thought of as less than. So they didn't tell the king that they're Jews. Mordecai says it's best if we just keep that to ourselves. But Esther gets Mordecai a job at the palace. And uh, so he's just got a menial job there at the palace. But one day, working at the palace, he hears of this plot to overthrow the king. Two men are talking about killing the king, and he hears it. So being a loyal servant, yes. Okay. Being a loyal servant to the king, a humble man, he tells Esther to tell the king. And Esther tells the king, and they find out about the plot, and they deal with those two guys. And they found out that it, you know, it was real. And, they, and he basically saved the king's life. But you're going to find out Xerxes is kind of crazy. He, he, there's no telling what's going to happen with this guy. He's kind of out of his mind. But, and, but he forgets about Mordecai helping. He doesn't do anything. Didn't even acknowledge that Mordecai was the one that saved his life. But what does a humble man do? Well, wait, you know, you forgot about me. I expect something out of everything that I do. 
No, Mordecai doesn't say a word. Just considers it his job, part of what he does, a humble man. But like I said, there's this other guy named Haman. Haman has risen to second in charge, just under Xerxes, the king. Now, I, I don't know how he got there. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I can guarantee you it was, like I said, stepping on folks. It was doing whatever he could because you can just tell this guy's conniving. He is prideful. He is arrogant. He's so arrogant that when he walks around the palace, he has told everybody that they must bow and pay homage to him as he walks by. And, and all the servants have to bow as, as Haman walks in. He's not even the king. But what Haman finds is, is when he walks by Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't bow. Now, it's not because Mordecai is too prideful to bow. It's because Mordecai is a Jew, and he serves the Lord God, and he's not going to bow before any human. Just like Daniel wouldn't bow before the golden statue. That was the same thing. He was in exile in Babylon, but he wouldn't bow. It's because of his love for God. And so Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman. And this made Haman mad. So he's fuming about it. He goes tells his buddies, what am I going to do? This guy's not bowing to me. He said, I know what I'll do. I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to make sure all the Jews are killed. And so he devises this plan. And he goes to the king and he says, king, there's this whole group of people you probably don't even know about. They're called the Jews. We need to get rid of them. They don't follow your laws. What he's really saying, they don't bow to me. We need to get rid of them. I think we should set a day in the future, and we'll just say it'll be destroy the Jews day. And we'll give everybody license to kill all the Jews on their street. King says, fine with me, I told you the king. <laughs> a little weird king. So he says, all right, and he signs it into a declaration that on a certain day in the future, they're going to kill all the Jews. Well, Mordecai hears about this plan, of course, being a Jew, knowing Esther's a Jew, and caring about the Jewish people, his community, and caring about people as a whole. He tears his clothes, and they won't let him do it in the palace, so he's outside the palace gate. He's heaping dust on his head and wailing and mourning and fasting and praying and doing things that a humble man would, seeking God in the middle of his trial. Esther doesn't know anything about the plan, but she looks out the palace window and sees Mordecai, her uncle, out there. She sends one of the servants, go see what's going on. He's not supposed to be doing that. And he sends back word to Esther, Esther, this plan has happened and they're going to they're going to kill all the Jews. And the guy comes back and tells Esther. She says, go back and tell him that I would like to do something. But, you know, nobody can approach that crazy king unless they, he asks them to come. If you approach King Xerxes without being bidden, you're, you're automatically killed. Unless he holds out the golden scepter to you. And she said, I ain't seen him in like 30 days. He ain't called for me. She sends back word to Mordecai. Mordecai says, go tell Esther. That if she doesn't try to save God's people, God will raise up somebody else who will. And don't let her think that just because she's in the palace that she might not be killed. You tell Esther this, that perhaps she was born for such a time as this. Perhaps she was brought into the kingdom for just such a time as this. And so the servant runs and tells Esther this news, and it just 
like it probably just touched your heart because you're thinking, maybe I was brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe I was born for more than I even realize. And it touched Esther's heart. She said, you go tell my Uncle Mordecai to have all the Jewish people fast and pray for me for three days. And I'm going to have my servant girls and we're going to fast. We're not going to eat a thing for three days. And whether the king kills me or not, I'm going before the king in three days on the third day. So they fast and they pray. And on the third day, the queen puts on her robe and she walks into the chamber where the king is. Knowing that if he's in a bad mood, And the king sees Esther coming, and a big smile comes on his face. Esther, so good to see you. And he holds out the golden scepter. And she comes and touches the end of it. He says, girl, I've been missing you. You know, that's a paraphrase. I'm so glad to see you. You know, I've, I've tell the stories. You have to read the details for yourself. I can't memorize the whole chapter, okay? I'm but I'm just giving you the story. And, and he says, what can I do for you? I just want to do something for you. I'll give you everything I have up to half of my kingdom I'll give to you. And she says, oh, king, I don't want to tell you now, but I'd like to invite you and your servant Haman to a banquet I'm having. He goes, that sounds fine. Then maybe you can tell me what I can do for you. And she leaves, and he's all excited. He goes, tells Haman, we've been in, the queen has invited us to a banquet. Haman's like, wow. He goes home. He's strutting like George Jefferson. He gets home. He tells everybody, man, y'all don't know what the king did for me. The queen herself invited me to a banquet. I'm talking, I'm big time now. I'm big, big time. He said, yeah, I, man, I am just honored. People bow down. He's just bragging and bragging and bragging. But then he thought the thought crossed his mind about Mordecai. He said, but it's hard. He, he's kind of a Weasley dude. You know, he's a, it's hard to be excited when old Mordecai won't bow to me. Because, you know, once you get like that, you're never happy. It's always one more thing you got to have. When you're trying to please self, there's always one more thing. You could be honored by the king himself, but there's always got to be one more thing. And that Mordecai, I just can't be happy because, and his wife steps up and she says, Haman, if that Mordecai is a problem to you, why don't you build a gallows 75 foot high and we'll hang him from it? He says, you're right. That's what I need to do. I just need to hang that Mordecai. And he commissioned us a gallows 75 foot high. Well, meanwhile, back at the palace, late that night, the king's trying to sleep, but he can't sleep. And oddly enough, he reaches for the book of the Chronicles that tells what's been going on in the kingdom. He's just trying to get sleepy or something. He's reading through, and he, he sees the part where it says that his life was spared from the two guys that had plotted to assassinate him. And it says that Mordecai was the one who had alerted Queen Esther, and he says, Servant, did we ever do anything for this Mordecai fella? He says, No, sir, we didn't do anything for Mordecai. About that time, 
Haman comes walking in the palace. Haman is there. He's going to go ahead and ask the, the king and tell the king about his gallows and say, is it all right if I go ahead and hang Mordecai? <laughs> Bad timing. Well, the king says, come on in, Haman. I got a question I want to ask you before you ask your question. What should the king do for somebody who really makes him happy? And Mordecai, in his arrogance, thinks, well, he's talking about me, I know, because everything's about me. So he says, well, I know what you should do, king. You should put him in some of your royal robes, and you should put that man on one of your royal horses, and you should have somebody go before him shouting, this is what the king does for somebody who pleases him. And he's already thinking, getting his spurs shined up. And the king says, great idea, Haman. I want you to go get Mordecai and put my robe on him and put him on my horse. And I want you to go before Mordecai shouting to the whole city that this is what the king does for somebody he delights in. Can you imagine Haman's face when he heard that? And oh, oh by the way, Haman, what did you want to ask? <laughs> Oh, uh, nothing, king, nothing. So he has to go out into the city parading Mordecai. That's what the king does for those who please him. I bet that was fun. Well, that next night, they have the banquet. Esther has the banquet, and king and Haman show up. Haman's saying it's got to get better from here, but at least I've been invited to the banquet. And the king says, good to see you, queen. You know, what can I do for you? I'm willing to give you up to half of my kingdom. And she says, king, I hate to even ask you this. If it was just that we were put into slavery or something, I wouldn't even mention it. We would be able to bear that. I don't even mean to bring this before you. But since there's been a decree that I should be killed and all my people should be killed, I thought I should come to you and ask that you might spare my life. He said, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> Who declared that you're going to be killed? My queen. Well, she said, it was your wicked servant, Haman, over here. And Haman said, oh, my, it's getting worse. And the king realized what Haman had done. And he was so angry that he walked out to the garden to collect himself before he came back with a decision on what he should do. What do you think he did when he came back? Well, we'll talk about that before we leave. But <laughs> Meanwhile, turn to Luke chapter 14. I know that was a long story, but you can begin to see the difference in God's grace on somebody's life, on the prideful or the humble. In fact, in Luke 14, verse 8, Jesus gives us some wise, wise advice that I wish I would have learned many years before I finally did. When you are invited to a wedding feast, Jesus says, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone is more distinguished than you? has also been invited. 
the host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when the host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, let me tell you this. The moment you get saved, there's a process of humility that begins to take place in your life. Most of what we call sanctification, the, the learning to, to be more like Jesus, is simply a process of getting rid of all the human pride that has caused you to act as crazily as you have acted in the past. That's what sanctification is. It's a humbling process. At least that's the way I've experienced it. Listen, I had my issues. <laughs> Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let someone else praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. Humans tend to be what we call glory hogs. How many remembers my series several years ago called Whole Hog? Where we were encouraged to give it all to Jesus. To let go of the glory for ourselves and give our lives to Jesus. But humans, by human nature, tend to be glory hogs. They want the glory. I remember the first band I played at. You know, when I was, I started playing guitar when I was about 14. And was in a band by the time I was 15. And had my first gig playing at a, well, we had some little gigs that didn't pay or something. But, but the first paying gig I had was about like when I was 17 years old at this little restaurant. We had, I had a three-piece band. And me, and me and my best friends, we were tight, you know. We were in this together, and we practiced all the time. I mean, we didn't practice once a week. We practiced four or five times a week. Drove our parents crazy. But we finally had a paying gig. We were all going to get like 25 bucks a piece for playing. And we played at this little coffee house or something, and we played. And when we got through, we got paid. And then they invited us to come back the next Saturday. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be lots of money. This is going to be big. We're big time now. So between then and our next practice time, I had thought to myself, we need to devise a new plan to split this money. So I went to the drummer and the bass player, and I said, look, guys, you know, I'm writing all the songs. I'm singing all the songs. I'm playing the lead guitar. You guys are just basically the rhythm section. I think it would only be fair if I were to like get 50 and you guys split the 25. Some of you are wanting to kill me right now. Some of you are looking at me. My gosh. Arrogance is not a good look, is it? But if you'd have seen me in those days, You'd have seen, you'd have saw that I deserved the 50 bucks. Because when I played, I would play behind my head. I'd play behind my back. I thought I was Stevie Ray Vaughan. And some of you may be in a stage like that today. You're playing life behind your back and behind your head, and you are proclaiming that I'm the new Haman in town. And you're just making a fool out of yourself. That's all I was doing. I'm telling you, I was prideful from because when I was little, 
They told me I'm a Sheffield. And that was supposed to mean something. We're better than everybody else. We were taught to believe, you know. That's, that's, pride. that's American pride. It's, it's thought of as a positive trait here. And we teach our children to think they're better than other people. But trying to get glory for ourselves is not only exhausting, it's counterproductive. It doesn't work for you. Isaiah 42, 8 says God does not give his glory to any man. I like what it says in the message paraphrase. It says, I am God, that is my name, and I don't franchise my glory. The quicker we learn that all the glory belongs to God, the better our life will be. Because you're not going to get God's help if you're out glory hunting. He'll take his hands off and let you learn hard, the hard way. You exalt yourself, he'll humble you. I have learned when I pray, I don't say, God, make me humble. I tried that. Nope. I say, God, help me humble myself. Big difference. If you're... If you're not humble, you'll find yourself competing against God, and that's not, that's not a war that you can win. The Scriptures don't say anyway that if you be lifted up, you shall draw all men to you. Right? I mean, when, when was the last? You couldn't even save yourself. How are you going to save everybody everywhere at, at the same time like he does? Until we can do all that. Our shout needs to continue to be for Jesus. We didn't shout for ourselves and for our strength last Sunday. We shouted for victory of Jesus. And so I think it's very, very vital and important as we go forward. I think that what the Lord was saying, okay, you have the victory. When it begins to manifest in this church and we begin to grow, you need to remain humble. And you need to understand, you didn't fight that Midian army with 300 men. It wasn't you that did this. You don't, don't start jumping up trying to divide the credit and say, why didn't you call me and why didn't you give me the credit? Mm -mm, our shout is for Jesus. Micah 6, 8 tells it simply. says, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you. He's told you what is good and this is what God requires. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Not so hard, is it? Not so hard at all. To do what is right, to obey him, to love mercy. Mercy requires that you give it to somebody else as well as take it and to walk humbly with your God. It's said that humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. That's the problem. Me, me, me. My four and no more. My name is Jimmy. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Sound like Pastor Billy on that one, didn't I? Some of you know what I'm saying. Arrogance is not an appealing trait. You remember how you looked at me when I said I, I needed to get more money in the band, right? Same way them guys looked at me. <laughs> And they told, they told me, you'll be doing that solo gig next Saturday. So I rethought my position. 
But bragging doesn't have the effect that you think it does. Bragging doesn't make people think more highly of you. Tooting your own horn. They don't say, yeah, you're right. Tell me more about how great you are. They're like, what an idiot. <laughs> It'd be good if the NFL and the NBA players would get a hold of that concept. Okay, so sometimes when I preach a message and I talk on church terms and talk about the church as a whole or I talk about the kingdom of God, some of us are like, hell yeah, it's church stuff. And we don't get it. So I'm going to tell you a few, few things I jotted down just thinking about the benefits of some humility in our everyday lives. Just if, if you as a person, not even in the church, or just, just if you as a person would humble yourselves, these are some benefits that you would see in your everyday life. Are you ready? It takes away the constant pressure to perform. When you're humble. When you're not humble and you're trying to prove yourself all the time, there's a pressure that stays with you. And there's no peace in that. You can stop grading yourself on a scale of perfection. Your happiness is no longer conditional on your performance. You can be happy even though you're not succeeding. It takes away your need to compare yourselves with others. Remember, Apostle Paul said, that's, that's ignorant. How ignorant? New Living Translation. I think in the King James says, that's not wise. It makes you teachable so that you can learn more quickly. How many people that you try to tell, oh, I already know, I already know. You, you know everything. Why don't you be the boss? I mean, that's... Have you tried to teach anybody? Have you, have you, any of you bosses out there, managers or something, and you try to train somebody and they know everything? It's like, and they don't know nothing. It allows you to focus on others instead of yourself. And then, in turn, more people want to be around you. You become a leader that other people want to follow. See, Jesus teaches us to be servant leaders. That's why a lot of people in this church, we get along. There's not a lot of strife and bickering and stuff. You know, we're not holding salaries over each other's head. We're inspiring each other to, to serve the Lord. And you must show humility in that process as a leader. And people want to follow a, a humble leader. Another thing, humility allows you to laugh off your failures, fa fail, failures instead of trying to cover them up. You know, I do a lot of talking, so you've got to give me a, a break every now and then. That reminds me, you remember Moses. They said Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. He told God he couldn't speak good, remember? He said, I, I, st I stutter. I ain't never been able to speak good. I'm just happy God uses what I have to offer. So you can laugh at me if you want. Humility allows you to become truly self-aware and not deceived by your own press clippings. You can evaluate yourself honestly. Man, I tell you, if you before I got saved, if you'd asked me about anything, I was the expert. I was the best at everything. 
but now that I'm saved and God is in 20-something years of humbling process, I'll be honest with you. I ain't near as good as I thought I was. And so consequently, you don't have to eat so much crow in your life. If they say you are what you eat, then I'd pretty much be a crow right now. You look and act much more like Jesus, so you make a better Christian witness. People don't feel judged by you, so they can relax around you. You're much more apt to show others mercy. You have no need for envy and jealousy. You're not easily angered. You're content and satisfied, less likely to forge out ahead of God's plan. You're willing to be patient. It's not you against the world anymore. You become a cheerleader for others, a better team player. These are things that humility will do in your personal life just as a natural benefit. When everything is not about you, you become truly free. Because see, self is a relentless taskmaster. Self implodes. Self demands more than you can give it. Like Haman, he was never satisfied. He had everything he thought he wanted, but there was always one more thing. And that's that devil leading you about with a carrot. You're reaching for it, reaching for it. And in your pride, you think you're going to attain, but you're not. You learn to listen. Admit when you're wrong. Ask for help and advice. Give compliments and stop complaining. You're free to give other people credit. You learn to be yourself, to be good in your own skin. The, the, the self that some of you see in your pride is not the real you. You have made this person that's not real. You have made this persona. You, you believe your press clippings. You believe the, the, the foot you put forward on your Facebook post. When deep down, if you were to be honest, you're just like everybody else. You're broken and in need of a Savior. And so you can learn to be comfortable in who God made you. You're not comparing. Because you can sing a little bit, you're trying to sing better than Whitney Houston or something. You can let off all that pressure. All that stuff is, is weighing you down. Those are the cares of this life. If you're humble, God answers your prayers much more. He reveals truth that he has to hide from the proud. Humility is a sign of spiritual maturity and that the Holy Spirit is working in you, that you are being sanctified. Now, I like these last few. If you learn to be humble, your list of friends will grow and diversify. What do I mean by diversify? Well, they don't all have to meet your criteria that, that you used to think you had. You can have friends of different, different religions. You can have friends of different colors. You can have friends. You're not holding everybody else to some standard because you have learned to let go of those silly standards. Your list of friends will grow and diversify. Your boss will begin to prefer you. 
Some of you could, you could be owning the business by now if you weren't striving and fighting against everything that the company wants to do because of your pride. I love these last two. Your spouse will want to kiss you more. And your children will want to be around you again. Those are some pretty good everyday benefits from just humbling yourself, aren't they? I wrote this. The most, the most joyful and effective Christian is one who paints the most beautiful picture of Christ without photobombing it. The most joyful and effective Christian is the one who paints the most beautiful picture of Christ with their life without photobombing it, having to be in the picture. I heard a, a song on the way to church this morning. I don't know what it said exactly, but it had one line in it. Is, I'm not living for a legacy. I want his name to be known. <laughs> I don't care what they think about me when I'm gone. I am in, insignificant. I live for Christ. I love that. So what happened to Haman? Poor fella. Shows up at the banquet with his finest duds on thinking, look at me. And the queen says, that wicked Haman has plotted to kill me and all the Jews. And the king is furious and he walks out into the, to the garden. And Haman's like, oh. Uh, Queen Esther, please, please, Queen Esther, please, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Queen Esther. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know you were a Jew. I, 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 we'll try to figure this out. And he gets up on the couch with Queen Esther, and he's begging her when the king walks back in. He, he says, so you going to have your way with my king too? My queen too? Further angers the king. What happened to old Haman? Well, first of all, the king gave all of Haman's stuff, all his property, and everything he owned to Queen Esther. He gave Haman's job as second in charge of all of the land of Persia to humble Mordecai. And Haman was hung on those 75-foot gallows that he himself had erected for Mordecai. Isn't that something? <laughs> James 4.10 says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Humble yourself, and he will lift you up. That's a lot better than the lifting up that Haman got, isn't it? So you don't humble yourself. That's the kind of lifting up you're going to get. Don't pray, God, humble me. Pray, God, help me humble myself so that I may walk before you. Never has anyone and never will anyone to this degree show more humility than our Lord Jesus Christ. Hands down. And neither has anyone been exalted higher because of his willingness to go lower. From 
as far as the east is from the west, is where he went in humility and where he was exalted to in his divinity. Think about it. If you were to come to the place you created, this little bitty far off planet in the middle of this huge galaxy in the middle of this huge universe, and you created all that too. But you got these little people down here, and you come to this little planet that you created, and they can't find one room for you to be born in. You have to go be born in a manger with the animals. If anyone ever had a right to come down here and say, look at all what I did. If anyone had a right to put on the king's robe and ride on the king's horse, it was Jesus. But he became one of us. And that's so far below his divinity in heaven. Often when I used to teach the children in children's church, one of the things I learned is when I'm talking to them, to them from up here at six foot four, they just see this authority figure. They see this big man. And they don't even hear half of what I'm saying. It's going right over their heads. So I learned to get down on a knee and look them in the face and give them a smile, give them a hug. And man, they will warm up to you like nobody's business. And they'll see you and be able to receive from you. And that's what Jesus did for us as a people. He became one of us. He experienced the things that we experienced so he can know what we're facing. He went through what you've gone through. He's faced the temptations that you have, but yet without sin. And then he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is supreme humility. To come riding in your triumphal entry into Jerusalem that had been foretold thousands of years beforehand in the, by the prophets you come riding in on a donkey. No stretch limo. No helicopter. He comes riding in on a donkey. At the Last Supper, he puts on a towel. This is God. Puts on a towel and washes his disciples' feet. And do you know what he did? When he came to Judas, when it was Judas's turn, and he looked up at Judas's face and saw a man who, in the back of his mind, is thinking, I'm fixing to turn this guy in. I'm fixing to betray him. Judas washed, Jesus washed Judas's feet. John 13, 14 
says, and since I, the Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Jesus willingly went on to bear all of our shame. He had no shame of his own. He had done nothing shameful. He had no sin, but he bore our sin. He was not thinking of self. It was the most selfless act ever in the history of mankind that God who created his people would die for his people. It was the greatest act of humility ever known. Philippians 2.5 says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Wow, if we could just have a little bit of that attitude. If we could just really allow somebody else to have that parking spot without telling them they're number one. If we could just let that person that seems so anxious to go around us, we could let them go around us without trying to make a show and run them off the road. They may be going to the hospital. You don't know. If we could just for a moment, just in little ways each day, learn that it's not all about us. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God highly elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's who we should bow to. When you're trying to act like Haman, you're just trying to get other people to bow to you. But no, we should bow to Jesus alone. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It'll take all the pressure off your life. And I tell you, God will rush to your aid when he sees a humble heart. He's on your side. He wants to exalt you in due season if you will humble yourself. As we move forward as a church into this victory that is on our horizon, I don't know what victory exactly is for us. I believe it has something to do with going into all the world and making disciples and life's changed. I want to pledge to you today, I wrote this down, I pledge not to take the credit as your pastor. Pastors could, you know, try to say, look what I did. I can promise you, I can promise you I have a greater sense of what I have not done than what I have done. All I have done is simply listen to God and do what he says. One step of the way. I have learned that much. I pledge not to take credit or to demand my way or ask for special privileges. Or in any way become cocky 
or arrogant about the success that God is going to bring to this church. I will give God all the glory. Now, that's just me speaking. But I'm going to ask you today, we're in this together. Will you pledge the same thing? Can we not bicker and fight over credit about this? Can our shout remain for Jesus Christ? Because the more we fight and bicker over these things, the more God takes his hand off. And I don't want to do anything that's going to slow down the process of these purple chairs being filled up. Man, I, I tell God all the time, if I'm in your way, take me out. I want more than anything to see God's will accomplished in this earth so that he can get the glory. And I'm not just saying that. I know it took me a long time to get here. It took me a long, long time walking with Jesus. But the more I've walked with him, the closer I get to him, he's really everything to me. He's all that I need, all that I want. It's all in the relationship with him. And he has taught me that all, all the things all the accolades and all the glory hunting. What, there's a scripture trying to creep in my mind and I can't think of it. I guess maybe I wasn't supposed to say it. But that's what I, I came to say today. The Lord showed me that the victory has been shouted for. Victory is, is, is on the way. But we must remain humble throughout the entire process. And if we will, there'll be, you know, us jumping up will be like putting up a wall against what God's trying to do. So let's work together. When there's arguments, when we get bigger, when, when those seats are filled up and there's more headache in the church, look, more people and more buildings and more things and more churches that we're growing and stuff, that's all going to be more responsibility, more headaches, and more chances for us to fight and bicker. But you came out in the rain today, so I, I feel like you are the big brothers and sisters in this church. I feel like you're the ones God wanted to hear this. There's nothing that can stop us if we will give God the glory. Can I get an amen? amen. And I can feel a lot of pressure already relieved, can't you? Don't be a Haman. Be a Mordecai. God will exalt you in due season. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.